At some point in your life, you or someone you love will have an illness that you hope will be addressed by, with a medical treatment. The decision to use this treatment will be based on medical research, you hope. The reliability of medical research will be the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm John Baylor. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio is regular panelist Richard Campbell of Media Journalism and Film. Our regular moderator, Rosemary Pennington, is not available today. Our guest today is Frank Harrell. Harrell is the founding chair of the Vanderbilt Biostatistics Department, as well as expert statistical advisor for the Office of Biostatistics for the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research at the FDA. He's written impactful books on modeling, software packages to facilitate analyses, and hundreds of scientific papers, and we're delighted to have him join us today. Frank, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Let me start by asking, what first attracted you to working in biomedical research? Well, that's, that's a good question because it, like so many things in our lives, uh, you stumble upon something or uh, things happen by random chance. So I was bored after finishing my sophomore year in high school and it was summer and I was looking for something to do. And my mother suggested that I volunteer at the Veterans Hospital in Birmingham, Alabama. And I started helping cart patients around in wheelchairs but the group that I was working with, which was gastroenterology, uh, they also had a research lab. And so they introduced me to what their research was about, which was about the esophagus and the stomach, and uh, especially uh, looking at pressure waves uh, to study the peristalsis and the, the contractions uh, in the esophagus. Uh, and they had a lot of data they needed help with uh, means and standard deviation. So. I got interested in biomedical research because of that accidental uh, stumbling upon gastroenterology uh, in Birmingham. And, and you were doing data analysis even then? Even then, as a high school student, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, <laughs> but I, I started looking, I think, at Snedeker and Cochran's book, uh, learning just enough to be very dangerous. And then something remarkable happened, which is the head of biostatistics at UAB, David Hurst, uh, had an open door policy and, and this student shows up in his office and he's willing to help. And then I ended up going to college at UAB and taking several uh, graduate biostat courses from UAB uh, when I was an undergrad. Uh, and then I got interested in physiology because I was interested in physics. Uh, and so I started sort of combining physiology and, and biology with uh, statistics and really, really enjoyed that combination. That sounds like the, the, the perfect jumping off point to go into biostatistics. Yeah, and, and the advice that David Hurst gave me when I was thinking about graduate school was the best advice that I ever took. Uh, I've had some good advice I didn't take, but uh, <laughs> I took his advice and he was way ahead of his time. So Dave said, go to University of North Carolina, get a PhD in biostatistics and a supporting program in computer science and biomedical engineering. And... Uh, an unbelievable advice. And what I did was Biostat UNC, and my supporting program was uh, biomedical engineering and physiology. And so uh, that, the advice David Hurst gave me in Birmingham was just, it was so good, I can't even, can't even hardly talk about it. It was brilliant. So what would you say today to uh, a student who wanted to sort of do your job? Uh, 
and you got to them early, what would you tell them to do to kind of prepare for the career that you had? Well, I think your worldview has something to do with it because um, if you have a worldview that, that you don't take things at face value, but you have a degree of skepticism about everything you encounter, mm-hmm. which I was always that way, um, I think that portends well for our life as a statistician. But then, of course, you need you need a good math background. You need to really like math, but you really need to like at asking questions. So uh, skepticism and curiosity in equal doses with mm-hmm. with math and quantitative skills, I think, is, is a great combination. It's interesting you say that. Those are the things, I think, that we want from our journalism students as well, skepticism yes. and uh, uh, just without the math part. I was going to say, we went to quantitative <laughs> skills, too, here, Richard. Come on. This is why partly why we're doing the podcast is to encourage our students in journalism to, to know a little bit more about statistics and numbers because they're the ones that are going to write the stories. So. Yeah. So, so Frank, a lot of your work has been in in medical contexts, you know, in, in departments either associated with schools of medicine and departments of biostatistics in these different places. Uh, how, what has that been like? And then, how did that lead to your engagement with the uh, the FDA? Well, I've always liked working with physician researchers, and and found them great to work with. Um, and medicine has a lot of data. So before we had the data explosion that you see now with the Internet and everything, there was already a lot of data in medical research. So having data around was a great attraction for me because I always like to have useful applications of statistics that really mattered, and medicine matters because it's, uh, it's involving making people live longer or feel better. And so I think those that work in medical statistics, you have a little little extra spring in your step. If you're dealing with public health, uh, environmental health, medicine, and there's many other good and worthwhile fields, but I, medicine is a field I can feel very good about. Uh, so a combination of the type and quantity of data, the cause, and then the physician investigators uh, are just uh, exceptional collaborators. I read in one uh, I think it was something on your blog, uh, which certainly it wasn't written for someone with my background, but there was a sentence that struck me. You talked about the failure to attract variables that are available in medical practice, and I wondered kind of what that was, and you said that sometimes that's intentional. And, uh, and I think this has to do with, uh, you know, ran- randomized clinical trials. Uh, but I, I didn't know what those variables were that you would attract in medical practice. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, Richard, I think the context you're speaking of is a context where uh, the person who is doing the research is biased in favor of a certain technology. Ah. And, and they, they make themselves not know something so that what they're evaluating as a new technology has a lot of information value to it. And so we see this very often in genetics research and in biomarker research. Well, somebody will have a new biomarker or it could be a molecular signal from genes or proteins or microbiome. And they are trying to show that this new technology has signals in it that are informative for diagnosing treating or, or following patients to, for their prognosis, and they, they refuse to 
adjust for or take into account the the information that a clinician would already have. Mm -hmm. uh, one review article by Rich Simon gave a very egregious example where cancer biomarkers were showing, trying to show that they added new value uh, for prognosis in certain cancers. And uh, this was cancer such as lung cancer where mm -hmm. the treatment is usually surgery. And uh, a key variable is when a surgeon takes out part of a lung, how much of how much of the tumor was unable to be removed? Uh, it it might be you know invading the spinal mm -hmm. cord or something. You can't remove it. Um, so the the residual tumor volume is a key predictor of ultimate outcome of the mm -hmm. patient. And many studies refused to adjust for that, even though it was oh. measured, mm. because if you measured the residual tumor volume, it would be such a powerful prognostic factor that these new high-tech measurements would not really mm. add to that. So they dumbed down the analysis to make the new measurements look good. Very good. That's a good example that I understood. Thank you very much. <laughs> good. good. <laughs> so, so is that, that one of those examples of the, the problems of concern that, that you voice in terms of the reliability of, of the research, of biomedical research? Yeah, that one has a little bit to do with reliability, a little bit more to do with just uh, being biased and overstating the value of new measurements. But there's other ways that reliability or unreliability manifests itself. So I think uh, many of us are getting familiar with the term of p-hacking, yeah. which is, you could call that analysis to a foregone conclusion, uh, finding analyses that, it, uh, uh, that justify a certain belief. Uh, sounds like the way politicians tend to act. They say, I, this is what I want to say, now get me the data to back <laughs> it up. So um, the, the idea of doing uh, analyses until you find an answer that's publishable or something that will give a press release, make you famous, uh, is all too common in research. Uh, there's other kinds of unreliability that's not quite so obvious where uh, someone will just, um, they'll rationalize away their original plan hmm. uh, and they'll say they, they thought this drug was gonna lower blood pressure instead of that it didn't do that, so we really wanted to see if it lowers heart attack risk. And so changing the goalpost, um, uh, which is what Andrew Gelman calls the uh, garden of forking paths, uh, is just another form of uh, kind of over-aggressive analysis or what has been called uh, too many investigator degrees of freedom. So they, if you give an investigator too much freedom, and you don't have a real pre-specified specific statistical plan, human nature being what it is, people will say, oh, I made a mistake in the original plan, um, and so I want to change the plan to do this other analysis. And of course, if the statistician wanted to get the attention of the investigator, the statistician could say, well, you know, this analysis that you published uh, six months ago had a p-value of 0.03, I, I think maybe there was a problem with that plan and we should reevaluate it. Uh, you wouldn't see the ready acceptance of the reevaluation if it was a positive finding the first time. Hmm. I read, you know, I listened uh, to the webinar that you did earlier. I think it was this year. Um, and you talked about the, uh, the uses of, of interactive graphics in work. And I looked at some of that and it was really fascinating. 
But you're also uh, critical of uh, statisticians, I think, and maybe scientists who throw out some of the old methods at work. So I'm kind of interested in the sort of combination here of, you know, what old stuff is working and what's the promise of the interactive active graphics that you're interested in. It was just fascinating to, to see uh, what was available there in your webinar. That's actually a very difficult question, Richard. <laughs> and I, I think that there's some, there's some old style graphics, static graphics that are really informative and beautiful. And of course, mm -hmm. some of the best examples are in Edward Tufte's books. Yes. But he has an example of a beautiful graphic that has a little flap of paper in one of the corners and you open the flap and you get another level of detail. Mm -hmm. uh, that that's the paper version of right, the sort of right. interactive graphics I was showing. So uh, you can do that with older technology, but the newer technology gives you more options and it's easier to execute. Mm -hmm. So, um, but, but I think uh, static graphics have a lot to offer. Also, I think where the idea of throwing out old methods has come to the fore even more is the current uh, excitement about machine learning Mm. where uh, every time someone studies the older methods that have been around since uh, Gauss and uh, Pearson and, and so on uh, of regression analysis, uh, the regression analysis looks pretty darn good. So mm -hmm. somebody will say, well, we need to throw a machine learning algorithm at some data. And if it's not the kind of data that's really primed for machine learning, uh, such as image recognition applications is great for machine learning. Often the new methods really don't have any advantage of the older uh, approach to statistics, and sometimes the newer methods actually work worse. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd like to just follow up quickly on, on your comment about the idea of, of these secondary endpoints that, that might be all of a sudden elevated to pro of primary interest after looking at data. I mean, don't... don't these trials require some registration of, of what's being done and what's going to be the focus of, of the study? Uh, yes. I mean, to get to get to have scientific validity, uh, you need to make the study not look like a fishing expedition. Mm -hmm. So there needs to be a plan. There needs to be some level of pre-specification. Uh, it can go too far, though. And so when you listen to the discussion among investigators of what's going to be the primary endpoint, co-primary endpoint, secondary endpoint, co-secondary, they make all of these designations and they don't always make any sense. And mm. often the the degree of primacy of an endpoint is chosen by what the statistical power is for that particular endpoint instead of making what's most important to the patient be the primary endpoint. And the other thing that drives this discussion, you have to get more technical to really understand this, is what's called alpha spending or control of type one error probability. So in the traditional designs, unlike the newer Bayesian designs, uh, there's a wish to control some sort of overall family-wise type one error probability. And so you start allocating the alpha uh, so that your total probability of making a claim of some treatment effect is maybe 0.05, no matter how many uh, comparisons you did or how many endpoints you examine. Uh, the Bayesians would look at this in an incredibly different way, 
which is we want to assess the evidence for any one question. And the evidence for uh, one question is not tilted by the evidence for another question. And so it's, it's a dramatically different way to think about mm-hmm. evidence. And the, the attempt to preserve the overall sort of false alarm rate of type one error is at the heart of a lot of confusion. And in some cases, some very arbitrary designations of primary and secondary analyses. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Frank Carroll, Vanderbilt University, about biomedical research. Frank, I'd like to change gears just a little bit and ask you about your very impactful social media presence. You're a blogger, and you have an active Twitter account, and lots of people following your your insights. Um, I like your statistical thought of the day. That and I, you had one recently that said machine learning is to statistical models as precision medicine is to standard clinical information. So, so I've got sort of a two-part question. First, what led you to think about engaging with, with social media to this degree? And secondly, can you help unpack that statistical thought that I, I just, just reported? Great questions. The, the thing about social media has come as a total shock to me because um, – I'm one of these few people that boycott Facebook and won't use it for any purpose. Hey, join me. I'm I'm there with you. All right. <laughs> and John is too. I, <laughs> I personally think Facebook has harmed our society in in ways that very few foreign powers would be able to accomplish. Yes. Uh, I but agree. that's another for another day. Yes. But I I thought I would never be on Twitter or have a blog, and I got the urge to have a blog uh, mainly because. Uh, I'm frustrated with the publication model and how slow journals are and how slow peer review is. And also, I'm very alarmed at the predatory uh, uh, profit-oriented publishing houses. Um, And so, uh, and blogs, you can be very informal and you can get the message out very quickly. And then when somebody points out a mistake, you can fix the darn thing. You know, you don't have to declare it permanently a final copy. So I like the idea of having something that's more dynamic. And then I found out you can't have a blog without without being on Twitter because <laughs> nobody nobody will know about the blog unless you tweet about it. So Twitter was was a total surprise I would ever uh, get into Twitter. I'm, I'm still shocked that I did. But it's really made the blog more successful. But what's really a shock to me is as an educational environment, I have learned more from Twitter. I probably learned 10 times from Twitter what I ever thought I would learn. People are always pointing out to me either flaws in my logic or here's a paper you missed. Here is a handout from somebody's Mm -hmm. course that you missed. Here is a preprint on archive that you didn't know about. Uh, Here's an upcoming talk. Watch out for this because it's going to be relevant to your research. Uh, the amount of information that I get taught to me or alerted to other web resources or publications about on Twitter has been stunning. Mm-hmm. You, I've also seen you criticize Twitter, though, and uh, I think it led to the blog, right? Is that, Or do I have that wrong? You had some criticisms of Twitter. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Um, I don't remember criticizing Twitter per se, uh, I think it was about the. They, I think it was about the length of the of the tweets I, I oh, read in your blog. Yeah, 
there are some technical things I was criticizing. I mean, originally the the length was so restricted. I, yes. I had a hard time getting a thought in there. Now they're longer. <laughs> right. Uh, but but then I think sometimes people, even gifted educators, don't use Twitter very effectively because they start uh, tutorials, and each chunk is well thought out and informative. But if you come back to it a day later, it gets sort of interrupted by a lot of other things oh. because it takes it takes multiple tweets. And so I've been urging people to put tutorials more as a cohesive topic in a single stream on our new discussion board, datamethods.org. Mm -hmm. And then you can tweet that out to say, look there and also comment there because the comments will be recorded all in one place right after your topic. So I, the main concern I had about uh, uh, tweets and that there was just people breaking them up into little pieces that get hard to connect to each other. I see. Well, I, you know, I don't think that uh, that Richard and I expected to be doing podcasts, you know, ten years ago either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sort of the, it's it's right. the, the kinds of things that you get drawn into, and and I think part of what what I see in in some of the things that you've been tweeting about and some of the blog, things that you've been blogging about, there's there's a great deal of exposition. I mean, you're you're talking about important ideas that you want others to try to understand and follow. Uh, what's what's been one of the, the the most important ideas recently that you've that you've thought about and that you wanted to, to weigh in on? Well, um, I'm always weighing in about uh, machine learning that's not done well. So that's that's been kind of a theme that's going on for several months. Uh, also, I a sort of a constant theme is the overhype of so-called precision medicine. Um, and then a lot of my tweets relate to trying to get people to understand the evidence on a scale that's more relevant. And so um, how do you understand what a reversed conditional is? So the, the rules of probability and what is it you're actually interested in calculating dictates your choice of methods like frequentness versus Bayesian statistics. So we everybody knows the the probability of a U.S. Senator being a woman is, I think it's 21 out of 100 senators are a, woman, are a woman. The probability of a woman being a senator is much, much less than that. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, the probability of a woman randomly chosen in the U.S. population being a senator is 21 out of 160 million. And so those wow. two probabilities are just the reverse conditional of each other and they have much different interpretation and much, much different value. And people are not realizing that in the, in the realm of statistical evidence that the probability of getting data that's surprising if a certain hypothesis is true, which is a p-value, is, is completely different to the probability that something's true given the data. So those are reverse conditional. So I do a lot of tweets that in some way or another relate to this idea of, of transposed conditionals and how your choice of what you're calculating the probability of versus what you want to take for granted or condition on is all important. So can, 
in that, in when I mentioned that the the analogy that you gave about machine learning to stat models as precision medicine to standard clinical information, th those were two of the the general themes that you just mentioned as well. So, can you talk a, just a little bit about what what is what is precision medicine, and and what do you think that the what what is the hype that's associated with it, and then just just a, a quick summary about what is machine learning, and 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 what's a characteristic of when it's not done well. Yeah, great, great questions. And so the um, precision medicine, it has multiple forms, uh, and some forms are a little bit more biologically well-reasoned than others. So an example of that would be uh, you might take a biopsy of a tumor and you might genotype the tumor, and knowing that it might dictate that there's certain drug pathways that are more uh, pertinent to uh, destroying that tumor. And so there's uh, genetics-guided uh, chemotherapy and, and other therapies in immunotherapy. Uh, so that is a kind of precision medicine where there's been some success. The kind that's less biologically directed where uh, a, a treatment comparison is done and the, the study is barely big enough to estimate the average treatment effect much less differential treatment effect or what's called heterogeneity of treatment effect. It's very common for clinical researchers to say, let's take this treatment comparison and subdivide it by the sex of the patient, the race of the patient, age, uh, various symptoms at presentation, and try to see if the treatment effect is different in these subgroups. And these subgroups are usually not very biologically well thought out and since the clinical trial is barely large enough to even estimate the average treatment effect, it's not going to be large enough to, to estimate the subgroup-specific treatment effect or the differential treatment effect, as we usually like to assess with interactions in a statistical model. And so a lot of the precision medicine of that second type has been not even attempted to be reproduced, or when it's attempted, to be reproduced, it does not reproduce. It's really a grand fishing expedition, um, and it really doesn't—it doesn't align with biology. Uh, it doesn't align with pharmacology and how drugs are metabolized. Um, there's a lot of problems there. So I sometimes I, I tweet that precision medicine has really turned out to be precision capitalism, because it's really taking resources into trying to refine. Uh, small small effects that really don't matter to public health end up costing patients more because they're paying higher amounts of money for targeted therapies using high technology uh, molecular markers, uh, and it's just it's really just redirecting resources with no demonstration of benefits to public health. In your, uh, in your webinar, you talked about, and you mentioned this a little bit, the reproducibility crisis in science. Could you talk a little bit more about that and, and about allowing others to, to, uh, to produce your work? Uh, that was something that you talked about, too, that I found very interesting. Right. So there's, um, there's a lack of reproducibility for so many reasons. Like we, we've touched on machine learning. Mm -hmm. You can have a machine learning algorithm that's over-learning and it's really learning noise, which is called overfitting, and and it doesn't generalize to other settings. 
uh, so that's not reproducible. Uh, a very common cause of non-reproducible research is just having uh, a poor experimental design mm -hmm. that was sort of hopeless from the get-go, uh, or the sample size wasn't big enough, uh, and so the results are just unreliable and imprecise. And then we talked about p-hacking, or the garden of forking paths analysis to a foregone conclusion. Mm -hmm. Uh, that will get a publication and will pad somebody's CV, but when you try to reproduce that, it very seldom mm -hmm. is reproducible. Uh, and so good experimental design, having an adequate information base by having an adequate sample size, those are all very important. Not overanalyzing the data or massaging or torturing the data till they confess. And then you touched, <laughs> Rich, you touched Richard on the idea of having the technical um, uh, reproducibility by using the right tools. And so this has been a revolution in, in statistical computing the last uh, 10 years where a number of tools have come into common use that make it easier for statisticians to script an entire analysis by embedding the analysis code into the report. And so you run the code and the code will reproduce all of the figures and graphics in the report and also reproduce some of the sentences mm -hmm. or some of the numbers that are inserted into sentences, uh, like confidence intervals and p-values and so mm -hmm. on. And so these, the idea of making a report that's reproducible because it has the full script of all of the analysis steps, including you might have a command in the script that says, Here's where the data are found. Download it from the internet now. Now feed it into the analysis. Mm -hmm. By having all of these scripted, anyone can rerun that and get the same result you got. Whether it's right or wrong, you could have made a mistake, but at least they'll be able to get exactly what you got with the same data because they've got the code there. So that's the scripted analysis and reproducible statistical reports. Uh, and my my book, Regression Modeling Strategies, that entire book is reproducible. So I could reproduce all of the tables and figures with a single command and regenerate all the PDF for the book. Very good. Yeah. Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Frank, thank you so much for being here. John and Richard, it was a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, oh, Frank. It's our pleasure. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.